0: Please be advised this podcast contains mature language and subject matter that includes descriptions of sexual assault.
1: In the fall of 1980, Robert Bender was an incoming freshman at Syracuse University in upstate New York. Robert was nerdy, creative, athletic, and Syracuse felt like the perfect place for
2: him. They had a gymnastics team, but in addition to having a good art program, they had like a wide variety of academic courses I could take. So I was attracted to the range of what I could do there. On the first day of freshman
1: year, Robert and his mom got to campus. they just made the four-hour drive from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. As they unloaded boxes in front of Robert's dorm, he and his mom were greeted by a charming man with a British accent. He was in his mid-to-late 20s, and he introduced himself as Conrad. He was a dorm manager and said he was there to help.
2: He started grabbing boxes. And then when he heard that I did gymnastics, he was like, you know, oh, he was so, so, all smiles and excited and how wonderful. And, um, you know, he said he had done gymnastics. I don't know whether that's true or not.
1: Like most wide-eyed 18-year-olds showing up at college, Robert was nervous, but Conrad put him at ease.
2: Yeah, I was definitely um, a little bit dislocated and uh, feeling somewhat um, alienated. And so uh, to have this person, like, really excited about you and wanting to see what you're doing and, um, and taking such a great interest in you, it kind of drew me in when I was very vulnerable.
1: Conrad was full of energy and charisma. He couldn't help but take over the moment.
2: So he got us um, up to the room, and I think within the first 10 minutes, I, I, he, he must have let us know that he had been in, in the Olympics. It was like something he really wanted to impress on me right away, that he was um, an Olympian, and of course I was very imp- impressed with that.
1: Robert had been doing gymnastics for a few years by then, and he wanted to walk onto the team at Syracuse. Conrad told Robert about the squad, the elite group of athletes he trained. He seemed confident he could make Robert great.
2: I think he was very good at um, sucking you in very quickly in just like a matter of minutes, like giving you enough information that like, whoa, this guy is something. He knows what he's doing. He's like accomplished a lot. And um, you know, if he shows an interest in me, like how exciting is that?
1: It was a perfect way to start his first day at college. Robert hadn't even unpacked his boxes and this stranger had made him feel special.
2: I think I was really flattered that he that he saw something in me that he wanted to and include me in this squad. I was totally sucked in by it.
1: For ESPN, I'm your host, Mike Kessler, and you're listening to The Running Man. Last time, we introduce you to Conrad Mainwaring and to two of his earliest known accusers from the 1970s. In this episode, we're gonna show you how an alleged predator operated, how he used secrecy and psychological manipulation to perfect his craft.
0: He
2: said, absolutely, nobody, I couldn't talk to anybody about this. He asked,
0: what's that about? And then I said, well, I don't trust you. The hard thing for me was, I
3: legitimately hated being under his spell.
1: This is episode 2 Mind Games. By the fall of 1980, not long after he left Camp Greylock, Conrad had enrolled at Syracuse University. He was studying for a master's degree in counseling and guidance. He also worked in student housing, so he lived in the dorms. That's how he recruited a whole new squad including the eager freshman, Robert Bender. Conrad had a bunch of rules for his squad members. No drinking or drugs, no fooling around with girls, and most important, no talking about the squad.
2: There were a few times where I got together with a few of the other students and we were going to go out running and we we all got up at like 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning and we were kind of sneaking out. And I remember, like, instead of going out the main lobby, we had to sneak out, like, through this window on the bottom of his office.
1: At first, the sneaking around was kind of alluring, an exclusive club.
2: Then he started in about his squad, which uh, was, uh, he impressed on me very early. It had to be top secret, and if anyone found out about it. You know, I could jeopardize what he's doing, so he's letting me in on this sort of secret
1: group. But the secrecy rose to another level. In letters he wrote to squad members he'd worked with at Camp Greylock, Conrad put a finer point on it. In one, he wrote, Naturally, I expect you to keep my address to yourself. I do not wish anyone at all to know this. In another, he wrote, I trust that you will not tell anyone where I am or what I am doing. But soon... Robert realized the squad was more of a concept than a reality. Most of the work Conrad did with his athletes was separate from the group. And in hindsight, that one-on-one dynamic
2: was odd. The gymnastics coaching never materialized. The closest that we got to that was he kind of came up to one of my practices and was sort of hiding in the shadows of the hallway outside the gym, peering in. He didn't even come into the gym. He didn't want anyone to see him.
1: Secrecy wasn't the only thing he brought with him to Syracuse. He also brought the idea of mental strength. Sports, he'd tell them, is 75% mental, and great athletes have to be able to perform in the most uncomfortable situations. During one of Robert's first private sessions with Conrad.
2: You know, we were kind of talking, and he kind of got in my, in my space, and they kind of went, reached out and put his hand on my, on my chest. Like, he got, kind of got closer than I was comfortable. I'm not sure what he was doing. And then he's like, wow, look at look at your eyes. They really dilated. Whoa.
1: Conrad told him this was all part of his training. He said,
2: I'm doing I'm gonna be doing things with you that are gonna like be like affront your sensibilities, but if you have any reaction, that's just your own fault. If you have alarm, that's like a weakness you have or something.
1: Soon, Robert says, Conrad pushed him further.
2: I would say probably the Second or third time I met him, um, I was sitting in a, I was sitting in his office, and I think he put like one arm up up here somewhere, and then he put the other hand on my upper thigh, and he kind of been drilling into me, you know, how much I need to trust him.
1: So Conrad has his hand on Robert's thigh, and he says,
2: "Show me how much you trust me," and. Um, So um, I put his hand in my crotch, and um, it took his hand away. And then he said, show me you trust me. So I did it again, and it uh, just—so we did it repeatedly. Then he started um, trying to stimulate me, and um, I didn't know what he was doing. I didn't know it was sexual. I just thought, this is all about trust. This is nothing about sex.
1: Robert says the sessions evolved into Conrad masturbating him, all under the premise that it was clinical, that he needed to learn how to concentrate under pressure. Robert wanted the training to work, but after several sessions, he says he drifted from Conrad. He needed to focus on academics. But even as he got some distance from Conrad, he was still confused by the experience. He'd been physically
2: aroused, but he felt violated. What did this all mean? I think he goes after heterosexual men having a homosexual act with a heterosexual man, and you feel ashamed about it, and um, you don't want anybody to know. and And he, he relies on that um, that horror that 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 his victim will be equally invested on in keeping it a secret as he wants it to be a secret.
1: And so, no matter how much it weighed on him, no matter how much he knew it just wasn't right, Robert didn't say a word. While Conrad was at Syracuse, he kept in touch with John Shapiro. John's the man we introduced in the last episode. He's the guy who says Conrad kissed him in the woods at Camp Greylock when he was just 14 years old. After the incident, John went back home to Long Island and started his sophomore year of high school. He never expected to see Conrad again. But then... Conrad kind of invited himself over to my house. And I
3: remember being like, oh man, this is ridiculous. So he came to visit me. And nothing happened because my parents were around. Like, I didn't have any abuse. But we would go to the side of my house and throw the football and try to train. And I was a mess.
1: John was torn. He was upset about what happened at Greylock, but he believed in Conrad as a coach. After the visit, Conrad wrote letters to John and called him on the phone. Syracuse was a huge sports school, and Conrad made sure to tell John that he was working with some big-time football and basketball players. I'm not going to name those athletes, They declined to talk to us, and we don't know if anything happened to them. But it's safe to say kids like John knew exactly who they were. He'd send me articles of athletes he was training uh,
3: that had success, and I would hang them up on my wall, and he would really prepping me like, you could be like
1: them. In letters and on the phone, Conrad insisted that if John was gonna reach his dream of making it to the NFL, he needed to get serious about training. He'd tell him, If you don't come up here and visit, I just have to work with other more dedicated athletes. Sorry, I don't have time for you. Conrad seemed to try to make squad members jealous of each other, especially if they'd never met. He'd brag about one guy's success as a way to encourage John. He'd say, you can be this great. You're this close. Or he'd use that success to break him down. See, you don't work as hard as that guy. You'll never be that great.
3: The hard thing for me was, I legitimately hated being under his spell even though I was twi- it was twisting for me because I was like I've gone so far and I've had all this success that um, I kind of was like I can't I have to stay with him or I'm gonna lose all my success.
1: In the winter of 1981 John finally caved. He was a star on all his high school teams. Football, basketball, track, he found some time between seasons to fly up to Syracuse and visit Conrad. John remembers making three trips, and in hindsight, he says each one must have been methodically planned by Conrad. It was always a combination of actual workouts, which he loved, and mental strength exercises, which he dreaded.
3: I would lay down, and he would start with physical therapy because I was sore from training or whatever, and then he would say, when you're really strong, like the Russians, they train with their mind, and when you really become strong, you'll be able to get an erection all with your mind, and then when you're really strong and be able to be an NFL player, you're gonna be able to ejaculate only using your mind. And of course I would fail, and then he would end up using his hand to do that.
1: John said some of the other mind games were even worse, like the time Conrad left him alone in the apartment and told him, don't eat anything, don't drink anything, and most importantly. Do not, under any circumstance, answer the phone. Do you understand it's very
3: critical no matter how much that phone rings, you do not answer. You understand? Yes. Yes, I understand. John, do you understand this is critical? Because if you do something like that, and I can't trust you that, like with something as simple as this, you can't be in the squad. Okay, Conrad, I understand. I got it. So he would leave. And of course, as soon as he leaves, the phone would ring, 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 ring and 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 ring
1: and ring and ring. John would think, Should I pick up?
3: Ring and 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 ring and
1: ring ring. What if it's important? Ring and 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 ring
3: for God knows how long.
1: It got so unbearable that John couldn't take it.
3: Finally, I'd give him pick it up and he would just be on the other end. Like, what are you doing? I You pick it up. You're so weak. You're mentally weak. And hang up and then come back super mad at me and like, and I would just crumble.
1: It didn't stop there. They'd have productive workouts. They'd hang out and watch TV. And then Conrad would find a way to break John down again. John called it mental torture. John says that Conrad would alienate him from other squad members. He'd secretly tell them to ignore John. It made him feel worthless. And in the midst of all this, Conrad would insist that John needed another physiotherapy session. John's mind was mush.
3: My defense mechanism was to get it over with really quickly, and I guess I was pretty in that way. So I was doing what he, I was actually achieving what he told me because when he did it, I would, I don't remember how I do it, but I would just get hard and get it over with as fast as possible and be like done with it.
1: But no matter how bad things got during the visits, John always left Syracuse on a positive note. He'd think to himself,
3: I'm so much more mentally tough than everybody.
1: Now you can put me through any situation on the football field and I have the skills to get through it. A part of John thought, maybe this is just the price I have to pay to make it to the next level. And he did make it. John got recruited to play football at Penn, and that would lead to a brief stint in the NFL. Conrad left Syracuse in 1985, right after finishing his master's. The school told us no official complaints were made about him. He took a job in the admissions department at Colgate University, which is about an hour away. So, a lot of his Syracuse squad members came to visit him. And he recruited new members, too. We found three men who said they were abused at Colgate between 1985 and 1987. Their stories were almost identical to the others. In the fall of 1987, Conrad told some of his athletes he was leaving for a new job at California Institute of Technology in Pasadena. Caltech is one of the top universities in the country. In a letter to one of the men we talked to, Conrad said he'd gotten a job there as a professor of psychology. But that wasn't true. He was working in the dorms again. We talked to three guys who said they were abused by Conrad at Caltech. And less than a year after he got there, he was gone. The student newspaper described his departure as mysterious. But Caltech told us they fired Conrad, quote, following an internal investigation related to a student complaint. They said the student was over 18 and didn't want to go to the police. After Caltech, things get murky. We know Conrad worked briefly at USC and at Santa Monica College in the 1990s, but honestly, it's kind of a black hole for us in his timeline. The schools won't say why he left, and no accusers from that time period have come forward. What we do know is that he kept recruiting new squad members throughout the 90s and into the 2000s. One of those new recruits was David O'Boyle. David grew up in the suburbs of LA and ran competitively in high school. And then in 2004, he went to UCLA. Keep in mind, this was 17 years after Conrad was at Caltech. So David was a freshman and he wanted to walk onto the track team. He ran the 400 meters and he was determined to get his time under 50 seconds.
0: It's kind of a number in the 400 meters. Like if you've done that, then it's, you're in a different category. At first,
1: David was training alone, trying to get ready for tryouts. He was focused on his nutrition, reading self-help books, and exploring different ways to bring out the best in his performance.
0: And so I was always kind of tinkering with my program to see what would work better.
1: He'd find open track meets and enter them on his own. One day in 2005, at a meet near L.A., he'd just finished a race when an older man approached him. It was Conrad, except now he went by another name, Coach Avondale. That's one of his
0: middle names. And he introduced himself as a track coach. And then he invited me to come and join his group the next day. I thought he was a little strange, but he was also really into track and so was I. So I was interested in in coming and training with his group.
1: David's experience was like so many others who wound up training with Conrad. Same rules, same message about mental strength, same end game. But in some ways, Conrad had gotten a lot more brazen. On any given day, David said there'd be a handful of squad members at the track. Conrad would help them stretch, and sometimes he'd grope them in plain sight.
0: No one would be looking at what the other person was doing, and no one would talk about it. I didn't talk about it to anyone. No one talked to me about it. It was just like it was something that was happening, and it was a normal thing, and everyone was focused on their own training.
1: Another squad member from that era told us that Conrad sometimes brought multiple men back to his apartment at the same time, in the same room, for what he called therapy. While David never witnessed that exact situation, over time, he grew increasingly uncomfortable. He liked the workouts, but that wasn't enough to justify sticking around. One day, he told Conrad he didn't want to be stretched out.
0: And he got upset and said, no, you're tight today, you need this, and then... So I just, I went along with it because he was the coach.
1: David pushed through as long as he could until finally he'd had enough.
0: Yeah. So after about a year or so of training with him, uh, he touched my leg and I pulled my leg away and then he asked, what's that about? And then I said, well, I don't trust you.
1: And that's when David stopped training with Conrad. He cut ties entirely. 10 years went by and David thought he'd moved on. He was still living in the LA area, working as a personal trainer at a gym. But one day in 2016, he was sitting in a library, staring at his computer, when he started thinking about Conrad.
0: So he Googled him. I was just thinking about what had happened and how I felt like he could still be out, out there doing this now.
1: The first thing that popped up was this travel blog about some guy's trip to England. It seemed like David had landed on the wrong page or clicked the wrong link or something. But then he started reading the comments, and strangely, they were all about Conrad.
0: It had multiple accounts of people talking about the abuse that he had done.
1: David was stunned. He had no idea how far back it all went. No idea that some of Conrad's former squad members had been quietly talking about him online. April 13, 2018. I was abused for several years by this despicable predator. It started when I was a minor, only 14 years old at Camp Greylock. And he definitely had no idea that this random blog had already begun the unraveling of Conrad Mainwaring.
3: So anyone that Googled him evidently was getting my blog.
0: Or that he would play a major role. Yeah, I was pretty angry. I was pretty upset that I got pretty worked up that this guy was a a child molester. In that
1: moment, David decided something had to be done about Conrad. That's next time on The Running Man. If you're a victim of sexual abuse and are looking for help, call Rain, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. The number for their 24-hour helpline is 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673.